PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to the Cast from Physical Therapy. Each month, PTJ Editor-in-Chief Dr. Rebecca Crick offers her take on the articles appearing in this month's PTJ. Here is Rebecca Crick. Hi, this is Becky Crick, Editor-in-Chief of Physical Therapy. I am really excited to talk to you about the July issue. This month, you'll see a call for the Editor-in-Chief. Unfortunately, my role as Editor-in-Chief will end in December 2015. We wanted to make sure that there was ample time to put a call out for the next editor-in-chief. So if you're interested or you know someone who's interested, please read the editorial about the upcoming application process. And now on to the July issue. The first article is from Profession Watch, and this is the results of the third research summit that has been held by the section of pediatrics. They have done a spectacular job identifying particular directions that need to be followed in pediatric research. Tubi Kolobi from University of Oklahoma is the first author. There are many authors listed, and then all of the participants are also in an appendix. Bottom line is a recommendation to look at dosing in children with cerebral palsy or brain injury related to constraint-induced movement therapy. So they call for an immediate meta-analysis, and it goes on to talk about how to foster critical debate related to developing a large-scale second-generation research proposal. So thank you, Tubi et al., for submitting this exciting summary to our journal. The next paper is entitled Effects of Dynamic Stepping Training on Non-Locomotor Tasks in Individuals Post-Stroke. The lead author is Don Straub from Rehab Institute of Chicago. This is a really interesting preliminary study. It's very small. There are 12 subacute and 10 chronic patients with stroke who were included in the study. They're really exploring the question of whether or not very specific training for one purpose has any spillover or carryover into other tasks. I think the importance of this study is when one believes that it's very important to do large doses of a particular activity to get an outcome, the question is, do you have to give up other activities or does the locomotor training enhance other goals that you might have for the patient? The next article is entitled Physical Therapist's Clinical Knowledge of Multidisciplinary Low Back Pain Treatment Guidelines. The area of low back pain has had some sort of practice guidelines available since 1987. There's still a gap between clinicians' knowledge of what to do related to particular intervention and what has been expected of us. It's a nice opportunity to look at the May issue and the article by Louise Connell talking about the GRASP program in persons post-stroke. The results are not dissimilar in that study compared to this. So I think the question is, how do we get the information to the clinicians around the world and provide the best opportunity for them to feel comfortable applying the recommended guidelines? The next paper is entitled, Relationship Between Lower Extremity Muscle Strength and All-Cause Mortality in Japanese Patients Undergoing Dialysis 
The first author is Ryota Matsuzawa from Kitasato University in Japan. It's a small sample of 190 patients. They were examined at the beginning of these seven years, and what they demonstrated is that persons with decreased lower extremity muscle strength as measured by extensors using a handheld dynamometer had a 2.7-fold higher risk of death than those with higher lower extremity muscle strength. And that lower extremity muscle strength was associated with systemic inflammation, protein energy malnutrition, and increased comorbid conditions. The authors do cite several examples of successful intervention in persons with renal failure. So this is a great opportunity for us. Thank you for submitting such a well-done article. The next paper is entitled Muscle Atrophy, Voluntary Activation Disturbances, and Low Serum Concentrations of IGF-1 and IGF-BD3 are associated with weakness in people with chronic stroke. The first author is Marcela de Abreu Silvacota from the Federal University of São Carlos in Brazil. So the question that the authors ask is, why do persons who have stroke demonstrate muscle weakness? Now, certainly the first response is usually it's involved the cortex and affected the fibers that are leaving the cerebral cortex coming down through the descending pathways to activate muscle. But that's only one of many reasons why persons may demonstrate weakness, and it doesn't account for the weakness that's seen on the unimpaired side. So bottom line is the persons who had stroke had lower serum concentrations of the IGF-1 and also the binding protein. They demonstrated weakness in neuromuscular performance. They had muscle atrophy. They had decreased muscle activation. So again, not cause and effect, but I believe this is one of the first studies to look at the presence of the insulin-like growth factor in persons post-stroke. The next article is entitled Clinical Identifiers for Early-Stage Primary Idiopathic Adhesive Capsulitis. Are we seeing the real picture? The first author is Sarah Wamsley from the University of Newcastle in New South Wales, Australia. This is a great paper. I would think that people who are in the clinic and seeing patients who may have adhesive capsulitis will love this paper, and I hope that investigators who are trying to identify criteria to diagnose adhesive capsulitis will find this paper of interest. This team came up with what they thought were eight criteria that could serve to diagnose adhesive capsulitis in the earliest stage. Bottom line is the criteria that they thought were good at being able to identify persons with adhesive capsulitis were only appropriate in 25% of the patients. So they basically suggest it's time to go back to the drawing board and re-examine criteria to be able to distinguish adhesive capsulitis from shoulder impingement. So a really thoughtful and fun paper to read. The next four papers I'm going to take as a group because they have a common theme of looking at a measurement tool and seeing whether it's useful in a population. The first is are hierarchical properties of the Fugelmeyer assessment scale the same in acute and chronic stroke? The first author is J. Leslie Crow from Erasmus MC University Medical Center in the Netherlands. The second paper is Stability of Serial Range of Motion Measurements of the Lower Extremities in Children with Cerebral Palsy. Can we do better? The first author is 
Johanna Dara from the University of Alberta. The third paper is Evidence for the Validity of the Modified Dynamic Gait Index Across Diagnostic Groups. The first author is Patricia Noritake Matsuda from the University of Washington. And the final paper in validation is entitled Validating a Simple Discharge Planning Tool Following Hospital Admission for an Isolated Lower Limb Fracture. First author is Laura Ann Kimmel from Monash University or La Trobe University in Australia. So the theme for all of these papers is can the tools that are available be used differently? So for the Fugelmeyer, the suggestion is that the hierarchical component of the Fugelmeyer can be used in persons with acute as well as chronic stroke. And that's really good because what it means is if the person is unable to do a particular task, you don't have to proceed with the rest of the test. In the case of the stability of serial range of motion measurements in children with cerebral palsy, we know that range of motion, particularly in lower extremity joints, is very important because it indicates in some cases the need for surgery or it's showing that surgery has failed or other types of intervention have failed. These authors talk about individual variability that occurs in those range of motion measurements over a longitudinal period of time. The next paper talks about the modified dynamic gait index with a large sample of persons with stroke, Parkinson's disease, vestibular dysfunction, gait abnormality, or traumatic brain injury. And what this study suggests is that the tool works across all of those patients. And those of you who know me know that I'm looking for very sensitive physical performance measures that can be used across populations instead of always looking for diagnosis-specific tests. So I am delighted to see this paper in our journal. Finally, the simple discharge planning tool is a really important beginning. One of the most difficult tasks for students to do in the acute care setting is to do discharge planning. They just don't know how, especially in the acute setting. They don't feel confident. So these authors have developed a very simple tool to determine discharge disposition. So this is the beginning of something big. The next paper is entitled Application of LSVT Big Intervention to Address Gait, Balance, Bed Mobility, and Dexterity in People with Parkinson's Disease. This is a case series. The first author is Yorina Janssens. She and her colleagues are from a variety of facilities in Switzerland. I'm really happy to see the Lee Silverman voice treatment big being recorded. It was developed first to enhance speech in persons with Parkinson's disease. The common characteristic is that persons with Parkinson's disease speak very softly. And so the emphasis on the intervention is to help the persons do big movements because apparently the basal ganglion scaling ability is impaired with Parkinson's disease. The authors are excited with their outcome and really recommend that it's time to do a larger clinical trial, and I agree. The other case series is entitled Examination and Treatment of Patients with Unilateral Vestibular Damage with Focus on the Musculoskeletal System by Kirsty Wilhelmsen and Alice Cavale from Bergen University College in Norway. I love this paper because those of you who know me know I hate silos of neuromuscular versus musculoskeletal. And what these authors did was they helped emphasize the fact that when a person has 
vestibular problems that spills over into the musculoskeletal system so that they end up with postural malalignment, restricted breathing, restricted trunk movements. They talked about examining and providing treatment intervention to resolve both the vestibular problem and the musculoskeletal problems that accompany it. We end the July issue with two perspectives. The first is the human movement system, our professional identity, written by the famous Shirley Sarman from Washington University. Shirley has delivered the Mary McMillan Lecture and received so many awards from our profession. The 2013 House of Delegates of the American Physical Therapy Association adopted a vision statement that addresses transforming society through optimizing movement. And so Dr. Simon helps us look at evolution from our role as technicians to becoming professionals. So I thank Dr. Simon for this very thoughtful perspective. The final perspective is entitled The Continuum of Care for Individuals with Lifelong Disabilities, Role of the Physical Therapist. The first author is Margot Orland from Drexel University. This is a very thoughtful perspective talking about the long-term effects of a childhood diagnosis. So, for example, right now there are 764,000 adults and children who have cerebral palsy in the United States, and 400,000 adults and children have Down syndrome at this moment. The authors really do an excellent job identifying all the factors, all the variables, all the needs that the persons have. But what's wonderful is they go to the next step and provide suggestions for physical therapist practice. So in closing, wow, is this an amazing issue? Thank you all for contributing to such an excellent July issue. Thanks for listening. If you have a question for Dr. Craig, email ptj at apta.org and be sure to include CraigCast in the subject line. This is a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net.